Thank you, Kevin. Well, in a world that is certainly filled with sorrow, and many of you are going through um, sad moments in your families, uh, what an undeserved privilege to be able to gather in the household of God with the people of God. Well, this morning we return uh, to the God-breathed words of Matthew 4. Uh, to the God-ordained testing and temptation of Jesus that begins in the wilderness, but then it actually continues in the household of God. And this is something that we think doesn't happen. The belief is when we come into the household of God, we're in the happy place. But as we walk through Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, we see very clearly temptation begins in the wilderness, but it continues in the household of God. And this testing and temptation of Jesus in the household of God, it serves and it's given to us as both a warning, but also an encouragement. A warning and an encouragement for all true children of God. And the warning is that the devil's attempts to lead us astray are not limited to our seasons of suffering in the wilderness. They're not limited to just hard times when you are not getting the job or the raise or the house or the things that you had hoped for. Yes, certainly Satan comes, we see, as a predator in those times of weakness and suffering and vulnerability to prey upon our flesh and to provoke us that there is a better life somewhere else apart from God's Word. But as we'll see this morning, the devil's attacks and temptations do not stop there. In fact, they continue and they intensify in the household of God. Buyer beware. When bank robber Willie Sutton, who was also known by the name I love, Slick Willie, was allegedly asked why he robbed banks, allegedly his response was what? That's where the money is. And why do wolves go to seminary? Why do wolves go to churches? Why do wolves become pastors? Why do wolves become missionaries? My mom, who's always watching, who's watching us live stream, always asks, wow, how would they let this person into seminary? How could this person become a pastor? Why do wolves go there? Just ask Willie Sutton. Because that's where the sheep are. As we go to Matthew chapter 4, there's also an encouragement. And that encouragement is that Jesus is indeed the good shepherd of Psalm 23. And Jesus is indeed a good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. And Jesus is indeed the good shepherd who protects his sheep. And how does he do that? Well, we'll see today. He does so by exposing, by resisting, and by destroying the devil's schemes to lead his sheep astray. And Jesus does this by faith in God's word and nothing else. And he does so not only in the wilderness, but he does so especially in the household of God. And as you walk through the Gospels, you will see Jesus do this repeatedly in the household of God. And it's in this way Jesus shows us his great love for us, and he shows us who he is, and he shows us what he's come to do according to God's word. And according to Matthew 4, Jesus is the faithful Son of God who has come to save us from our sin, and he has come to save us from those who would prey upon his sheep. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. 
I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What does it mean to be a Christian? I know I come back to this over and over again, but I come back to it because it is something that our churches and our American Christianity continually blurs the line over. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a child of God? Some of you who are present are you're going through our new members class, our harvest and hospitality process. You're thinking about, should I become a member of this church? Think hard. Okay? But hopefully as you go through this, what you're hearing is that whether we are new members or whether we are old, according to God's word, the fundamental criteria for membership in the household of God, the fundamental criteria of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, the fundamental criteria for being a member of a local church where Christ is Lord. It's not how much Bible you know. It's not how much you give or serve. It's not how much you think you can help the local church. According to God's word, the fundamental criteria for membership in his house is whether or not you are indeed a true and faithful child of God. Whether or not you are indeed a true and faithful child of God. That's the criteria which is going to get you through heaven's gate and makes you a part of the invisible church. Do your lives belong entirely to Jesus Christ? Is there evidence of fruit in keeping with repentance? Has your life been radically changed by the supernatural power of the gospel? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of all men, to the Jew first, but also to the Greeks. Are we truly Christ's sheep who faithfully follow him? Or are we merely wolves who are looking for a meal in a safe place? Well, according to God's word, this is what testing and temptation reveals. And this is one of the reasons why the Lord allows testing and temptation even in his house. 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord makes clear he is not endorsing factions or divisions in the church. And yet they are necessary and yet the Lord ordains it to test us to see where our hearts are and what we desire. Are we children of the Lord or have we deceived ourselves and are we just living for something else and the house of the Lord is a convenient place and safe place to pursue that agenda? 
Well, in Matthew 4, 1 through 4, Jesus begins by showing us first in the wilderness. And this brings us to our first point, that a faithful child of God does not live by bread alone, but by every, not some, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, you'll notice this is really a review of last week. Our first point this week is really more or less a summary of what we went over last week. So I'll go over this fairly briefly, but it's foundational for where we're going. It's really a test of whether we truly are a child of God. Verses 1 through 4, Jesus doesn't just quote the verbal, inspired, written Word of God, the Bible. He doesn't just quote it. By faith, He chooses to live by it. Even when he is weak, even when he is suffering, even when he is hungry, even when it doesn't work out well for him. Even when living by God's word makes his life hard. And it's in this way Jesus shows us that the test of a true or faithful child of God is not how much scripture we know. It's not being a Bible nerd. It's not going to seminary. As we'll see later this morning, the devil knows Scripture and he knows how to use it better than you and I. The real test is how much Scripture do you live by? Do you live by some of it, the portions that work well for you and make you feel better about yourself or the areas that you do well in? Or do you live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Do we, like Jesus, Son of God, Jesus, come under God's Word? Look at Jesus' life through the Gospels. He does not stand over it. He, the eternal Son of God, comes under its authority. He comes under its sufficiency. He comes under its truth. Do we, like Jesus, come under God's Word? Do we let it rule over our lives and determine our choices, our values, our direction? For who we date and what jobs we take and who we marry and who we live with? Or as a scoffer, do we stand over it and determine in our own eyes what it means for me? Do we, like Jesus, live in humble dependence and obedience and submission to every word of Scripture? For even the basic necessities of life, like a newborn craves its mother's milk to live and grow and spits out everything else, do we crave God's word as our joy, our delight, and what we so desperately and constantly need. I remember when our two boys were born. They were angry when they did not get their mother's milk. And when they did get their mother's milk, passed out, sleeping, the most peaceful look on their face. There is no substitute for a newborn child. And we see that in the lives of believers. Do we crave God's word? Do we delight in it? Do we get agitated and distressed when we cannot have it and feed on it? Is it the place that we go for nurture and comfort and strength and encouragement? Well, those are signs, brothers and sisters, of a healthy child versus a sick child. And it's interesting to note, as Jesus walks through these temptations and his life through these temptations gets harder And the challenges are more difficult. Consistently, his place of strength and comfort and power and reassurance and clarity. It's not, quote unquote, himself as a man. It's not, as we said before, his giftedness or accomplishment. It is the word of God. Brothers and sisters, when someone thinks they are a child of God but shows little interest in living by God's word, When a problem or conflict arises and there's little inclination to be corrected by God's Word, when there is joy and delight in anything and everything but God's Word, when there's little evidence 
or interest in being changed by God's Word. I don't need to change. I'm good to go. I know that passage. You don't need to tell me that passage. I know what it says. It's worth asking, am I really a child of God? When I am given the choice between my personal comfort or the will and Word of God, what do I choose? Well, in verses 1 through 4, Jesus' choice is clear. His food, John 4, 34, is to do His Father's will and obey His Father's Word, regardless of the cost. And this, brothers and sisters, is what testing and temptation in our lives reveals. It reveals not only what we live by, it exposes what we're living for. And this brings us to our second point this morning and the primary focus of our message this morning. A faithful child of God lives not for self, but for God, according to His Word. A faithful child of God lives not for self, but for God, according to His Word. Why does the Lord God bring testing and allow temptation even in His church? Well, it reveals what we're living for. Are we living for God or are we living for ourselves? And with each temptation, Jesus shows us He is indeed the Holy Son of God. He shows us what a faithful child of God looks like. He is not living for Himself, very clearly. He's living for God. He's living according to God's Word. And like God the Father, God the Son is self-giving. He is not self-absorbed. He is not self-indulgent. He is not self-serving. He does not arrange the church and the disciples and everything out there for what is convenient or best for Himself. In short, brothers and sisters, He is not selfish. And the aim of all Satan's temptations from beginning to end is for children of God to be selfish. Think of yourself. Think of what works well for you. Live for yourself. To make all of this about you. If you are the Son of God, command. He says this twice. If you are the Son of God, make it happen. If you are the Son of God, command. Take charge. Take control. Be independent. You do you. And brothers and sisters, it's just worth considering for a minute. Even America, which does not believe in God, everywhere, all that can be talked about, is how destructive our social media is when all we do is look at ourselves. Why? Because God created you to live for Him, and you're not enough. And if you're going to look at yourself in the mirror, you're going to see all the warts and all the flaws, and after a while, you will become anxious and depressed and discouraged because you are not enough. And yet that is exactly where the devil wants to take you, where all you are doing for 24-7 is looking at yourself and looking at everybody around you, what they have, what you don't have, what you'd like to be, what you'd like to do. And as he gets us to focus on ourselves, we lose sight of what? What is most gracious, what is most lovely, what is most beautiful? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when in verse 1 through 4, the devil fails to bully Jesus, to live for himself and live for his flesh in a time of need in the wilderness, what's the devil's response? Does he give up? Does he walk away? Does he apply? Jesus, good win. Good job. Fair play to you. Well, verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The holy city, brothers and sisters, is not a shady bar. It's not Las Vegas, it's not Sodom, and it's not Gomorrah. It's Jerusalem, it's Mount Zion, it's the holy city of God. And the temple is the place that Jesus refers to in Luke 2.49 and John 2.16 as my Father's house. 
and in Matthew 21, 13 as my house. And the temple is God's holiest place of worship and fellowship that he has provided for his children to come and gather and be in his presence. And Psalm 91.1 begins with the words, In the shelter of the Most High. This is where Satan takes Jesus and sets him on a pinnacle. And Josephus points out that some of these pinnacles had a 450 feet drop into the Kidron Valley below. And why does Satan bring him here? New Testament scholar R.T. France makes the statement. He says, the context makes it clear. It is a high part of the temple from which a fall might be fatal. The devil is literally setting the Son of God up for a fall, not just anywhere, but in his Father's house in front of the people of God. Why are there so, so many scandals in the church? Well, this is where Satan works. Why do they happen so often with men in positions of leadership? Pastors like myself, elders, deacons. Well, this is where Satan goes. He brings us to a dangerous place and a high place where there can be a great fall in the household of the Lord before the people of God so that many will stumble and question the goodness and truth of God. Brothers and sisters, if Satan can't entice a child of God to live for the flesh in the wilderness or suffering, he will most certainly try to make us fall in the household of God. And how will he do that? By living for yourself and trying to save yourself in the household of God. By making God's house and his worship all about you. And this is what the devil attempts to do in verse 6 when he says to Jesus, If you, if you are the Son of God, what? Throw yourself where? Down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I want you to note something, brothers and sisters. This is classic predatory behavior that gets repeated in the church over and over and over and over again by the father of predatory behavior. And it's going to continue with the Pharisees, and it's going to continue with Catholic priests, and it's going to continue with allegedly Christian camp leaders, and it continues with pastors and politicians and predatory wolves who prey upon vulnerable sheep in God's house. And how do they do it? First, by isolating someone in a dangerous place. We tell our kids, never go anywhere alone, even in the church, by isolating someone in a dangerous place and then using flattery and God's word to get us to look down rather than up. By using flattery and God's word to look at ourselves rather than God and the gospel. This is the prosperity gospel, the American gospel, where the focus is so much on us and what we need to get that we lose sight of God and the gospel, what he has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. What we do, the programs we need to accomplish, how we're going to have an impact for Christ, all of these things that look how we can save ourselves and it's all about us and we're looking down rather than up. And we validate and pump people up and say, oh, you're so great. You're so gifted. You can do this. You can. We're having an impact for Christ. We're building hospitals. We're going on mission trips. It's the way false teachers abuse, exploit, and ensnare vulnerable sheep. And it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, how well the devil knows and manipulates God's word to this end. First, he imitates Jesus with the words, for it is written. Same words that Jesus uses, for it is written. And he uses the authority of scripture to try and bully and get his way. 
And the one who lives by God's word, he attempts to bully with God's word. And then he masterfully chooses a temple psalm. Psalm 91, taken from the fourth book of the Psalms, which is predominantly devoted to corporate worship where? In the temple. And begins with verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. The devil is staging a movie. And he wants you to be in the limelight and in the focus, the star. But notice the parts that the devil quotes to Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Four times he uses you or a variation of you. This is all about you. So he's hand-selected these passages of Scripture. And he's made them to fit the moment that he has set up. And then he focuses and selects the part that focus on you and what you have to gain from God. It's all about you. And you will see over the centuries, this is how charlatans and false teachers and predators, same playbook, use the Word of God repeatedly to try and bend God's Word for their own dark purposes and agenda. And it's all about making God and His Word work for you. And with these scriptures, Satan urges Jesus to, quote-unquote, take a leap of faith in the household of God. To prove miraculously and publicly on the biggest and holiest stage that Jesus is indeed the beloved Son of God. To prove that He is the fulfillment of God's Word, Psalm 91. To prove that He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. To prove that God does indeed perfectly love and care for His children as promised. Jesus, show the world how much God the Father loves you. Jesus, show the world how much God's house and His worship and Word are all about you. Isn't that true? Isn't what the gospel is all about Jesus Christ? Well, show it to them and make that point. Brothers and sisters, how much of our worship, our ministry, and our testimonies are really all about us and what we want from God? Brothers and sisters, the good news of God's Word is that Jesus did not come to live for Himself. Romans 6.10 He came to live for God and He came to die for sinners like us. So that, 2 Corinthians 5.15 We might no longer live for ourselves, but instead we might live for Him. How? By faith in Him. We lose sight of this, don't we? Even in our sanctification. God didn't save you for a great life. He saved you for His life. And He saved us, brothers and sisters, so that we are set free. All this freedom we talk about in American religion. Freedom to do this, freedom to do that. The freedom... Christ died to give you is freedom from sin so that you're no longer ensnared and you no longer have to live for yourself, but in fact, you have the power to suffer and overcome regardless of the cost to live for Him, by faith in Him. And incidentally, brothers and sisters, that's where the sweetness of Christ's fellowship lies, to know Him in His suffering as well as His resurrection. The man who did premarital for Julie and I, when we were having a hard time, engaged, two different churches, serving at two different churches, things were not easy. It wasn't a big deal either, but it was hard for us, okay? But he reminded us as we were going through that, he says, you know what? When you look back, the things that you remember in your marriage and your ministry, they're not the trips to Hawaii. And that's not to belittle it. They're not all the big whistles and bell fun events. Typically, it's the times that are hard. It's the testing and the trials. 
that you look back and see where you grew and to see the magnitude of God's love at work in your life. And of course, as we're told in Hebrews, at the time it's painful because we're being disciplined or trained by our Father. But when we look back later and see the fruit of righteousness that comes, we see the miracle of Christ's presence in us. Brothers and sisters, as children of God, we don't have to live for ourselves. We can say no. And we don't have to jump off cliffs and scream and shout and jump up and down and make a fuss in the household of God because God is a good Father and His love is perfect and He is worthy of our trust. And this brings us to our last point for this morning. A faithful child of God will not put the Lord their God to the test. A faithful child of God will not put the Lord their God to the test. What is Jesus' response to Satan's bullying with God's word? Because that's what's happening. Those of you who struggle with sin, and that's me, we would do well to see how Jesus walks through this. He is our example. He does not listen to the devil. Listen, meaning he does not receive what the devil has to say. He doesn't entertain it. He doesn't debate it. He doesn't discuss it. He authoritatively resists. He authoritatively rebukes Satan with an explicit command of God. From Deuteronomy 6.16, verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now watch Jesus' example and how he deals with predatory false teachers or anyone with a personal agenda. False teachers, brothers and sisters, don't have to be someone in the pulpit. More dangerous. It can be as simple as someone in your small group who has an agenda in having you hear their opinion or receive their agenda. How does Jesus deal with this? He resists it, he rebukes it, and he calls to repentance with God's word. And if they refuse to listen, they are to be removed by God's word. And this is what Jesus does at verse 10. Satan, be gone. Get lost. Authoritatively. You have no place in my life. And this is Titus 3, the divisive man. And Titus, what we're learning, we are to affirm what is good. We are to rebuke what is not of the gospel. We are to do so sharply to return someone to sound faith. And if they refuse to listen, we are to move them on and say, you have no part in the family or the household of God. Whew. You going to roll with that? But that's how God call shepherds to care and love for their sheep because this is what Jesus does. And why does Jesus rebuke the devil with Deuteronomy 6.16? If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy, we know, fifth book of Moses, or the final section. And the second law, the covenant renewal of the people of God. And Deuteronomy begins with the testimony of who the Lord is and how He has perfectly loved the children of Israel. How? By miraculously and graciously saving them and making them His children. Saving them out of slavery in Egypt so that what? They can go out and have a party and a good time and have a great life and live in a big house? No, so that they can come and worship God and live for Him. So that they can be free to live for Him. And in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord God shepherds His children. And He defines this relationship between Himself and His children. How? According to His Word. So in verse 4, He says, through Moses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's He saying here? He's pointing out to them, we are not God. Breaking news, you are not God. It's not about you. The Lord is God, and we belong to Him. 
We belong to him entirely, every aspect of our lives. Verse 5, you shall love yourself with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's probably a Nike commercial, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And what follows? There's a series, if you read through, of divine commandments that show God's children how to love God according to His Word. That's why God gives us commandments. It's not because He's mean and He's cruel. He gives us commandments, brothers and sisters, to protect us and to show us how to love Him. And it begins with the command to live by God's Word for God alone. All those passages that you wake up in the morning, God's Word is on your heart. You go to bed, God's Word is on your heart. You teach your children morning, afternoon, and evening that we as a community, the household of God, we live by the Word of God. And then as you walk through Deuteronomy 6, it starts with who God is and our relationship and how we are to love God with a series of commandments that are all about how we love God, which means when we break God's commands, we're not loving God, we're loving ourselves. That's what that's about. And when there's a pattern of someone who refuses to obey God's command be it part or be it whole, we've got to ask, okay, do you really love God even though you say you're a Christian? What is the testimony of the pattern? Well, as we come to the end, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. And so we see this is all about loving the Lord. You test the Lord as the Israelites did at Massa. You don't love God. Well, what does it mean to test the Lord your God? Deuteronomy 6.16 shows us, it points us to Exodus 17, to the Word of God. So I'm going to get you to turn to Exodus 17. We read it this morning. Kevin read it this morning. Now Exodus 1 through 16. The Lord God miraculously saves Israel out of slavery from Egypt to worship Him and to serve Him and to live for Him. That's Exodus 1 through 16. And then in Exodus 17, 1, okay, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? In Hebrew, that word Massa means testing, or trial, or temptation. And the word meravah means protest or quarrel or strife. And in Scripture, as we've learned, to test is to apply pressure in order to prove something or someone. And in God's hands, testing always proves God's holy love for His children. When God presses us, He exposes what we are and what's inside our hearts. And if it is sin, God gives us the opportunity through that test and to graciously repent and come back to Him. In fact, that 
and those are the times, most certainly in my life, where God graciously shows hidden sins that I was not aware of until he squeezes a little bit. And then I discover Pastor Mark is not so holy and righteous as he thought, even though he gets up in the pulpit every Sunday. And we see from the Lord, Lord, thank you. What a goodness and a kindness that you protect us and you prove your love to us through humbling us, through testing. We don't want it, but we need it. It strengthens our, our faith. It strengthens our humility. It refines us. And if we're walking well, it affirms God's presence in our lives. And if we're not, it brings us back to Him. But testing in the hands of man is something different. We're not God. And we should never presume to be God. And testing God is a behavior of rebellious and unbelieving and spoiled children attempting to press or manipulate God and His Word. We're trying to get God to prove or make a point that He loves us when He has already shown how He has loved us. But it's not good enough for us. We're pushing God to love us in the way we want to be loved. And how does this happen in the household of God? It happens with divisive behavior. It happens with whispering. Verse 2, it happens with attacking the prophetic word of God and godly leadership. It happens with grumbling over what? Hunger and thirst when following Christ is difficult. It happens when life is hard. It happens when we say, is the Lord among us? Verse 7. Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart says, for the people to doubt God's presence among them was outrageously unfaithful. His presence with them in the wilderness was obviously manifest at all times, as it was at that very moment or time through the pillar of cloud and fire. So the people's question must be seen as nothing other than contempt. Contempt on what? Contempt on God's presence, contempt on God's love, and contempt on God's leadership in their lives, and contempt on the Word of God. They stood above it. Not good enough for us. Now you go back to Exodus 16, and what has God just done for them? He's given them manna, bread from heaven, and He's given them quail. He's fed them miraculously. But... Brothers and sisters, in my life, and maybe you're not like me, when life gets hard and difficult, the temptation comes to think about me, myself, and I and my problems. And when I'm thinking about me, myself, and I and my problems, I'm not thinking about what God has done to save me. I'm not thinking of all the horrible sins Mark Chin has done that the Lord has forgiven me at the foot of the cross. I'm not thinking about how the Lord has given me a new life and a new family and a new community of people. I'm not thinking about a new start. I'm thinking about me, myself, and I. Woe is me. How am I going to get through this? God, why have you put me in an impossible situation? And it's not a stretch to start to begin. Is God really there? Does he really love me? And of course, the situation of what I'm saying is, it's not does God love me, it's does God, does God love me in the way I want to be loved? And the implication of that is, I know better than God how Mark Chin needs to be taken care of. And it's disgusting, and it's vile, and it's blasphemy and idolatry because I place myself on the throne where there is only one who deserves to be there, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, this is exactly where Satan is using the Word of God to try and take Jesus. He's trying to urge Jesus to jump from the pinnacle, to make a scene in the household of God, to act out, to do a Son of God performance, a you-do-you you moment, to attract attention and to make everything about himself. And quite frankly, he continues to do so. 
This is all false religions, brothers and sisters. All religions apart from the gospel is about what you can do for God to manipulate God. You go to the temple, you light incense, you put some oranges up there, you make a donation, you serve, you run a ministry, and then God owes it to you to give you a spouse, a child, a a great house, a great life. And then when it doesn't happen, Lord, I did all this for you. Why, Why am I having such a hard time? It's a barter system to manipulate God to give you the love you want. That is your pilgrimage to Mecca and your trip to the monastery and your programs in the local church. But for Jesus, God's love is enough. For Jesus, God's word is enough. For Jesus, God's presence in his life and his plan of salvation is enough, even if he is hungry in the wilderness. For Jesus, God's promise is enough, even if his life is dangerous in the house and household of God. For Jesus, God's word and love is enough, even on the cross. And in this way, Jesus shows his love, brothers and sisters, for you and I. And he also shows the life that he died to give you an eye. To give sinners like you an eye the power and presence of God to overcome sin and endure hardship and adversity with a sweetness and a grace and a humility that comes from above. Brothers and sisters, how do children of God today experience God's presence and love and leadership in their lives? especially when your life is hard and especially in the household of God. It's in the person and presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's through His Spirit and His Word. It's through the Gospel, the power of God for salvation for all men, a salvation that extends to your sanctification all the way until Christ comes again. He is present. He is alive. He is risen from the grave. And it is Christ in you. And what is the proof of God's love for you? Well, he's shown it on the cross. Where Christ lived by God's word, not for himself, but for you. And he did not test God, even when the Pharisees and others said, if you're the Son of God, why don't you come off the cross? Why don't you save yourself? And the proof of God's love is Christ in you written on your hearts. It's fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a new heart. It's a new desire. It's a new life that is free to live for him and not for you. Brothers and sisters, it's a life of progressive victory over sin. Why? Because it's a life that is filled with Christ and not ourselves. It's a life where Christ is enough. And when we test God, and when we say, well, we would like this, or we're unhappy because we don't have this, a spouse, a marriage, a family, a child, a ministry, with mass, without mass, essentially what we're saying is the cross is not enough, Christ is not enough, I can't do A, B, C, and D, it's not enough for me to survive, I need Christ plus something else. But really what I need is that other thing. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is we do not have to be like that. We have been given the power to overcome. And so, brothers and sisters, there are some who are here with us today where you think you are a faithful child of God, but when we come to Matthew 4, you are not. Well, this is good news for you. Why? Because Jesus shows us this this so that he can save us. So that he can show us it's not another love that you need. What you need is to repent and place your faith in him and know him as your only hope and love. There may even be some wolves in our midst. Well, there's good news here in Matthew 4. Because Christ rebukes you and shows you and calls you to stop living for your own agenda or using God's word or the church for your own agenda, but instead you can have forgiveness and you can live for him. That was Saul of Tarsus, 
who was a predator on Christians, but became the greatest emissary and ambassador of the love of Christ. There are some of you who are struggling to overcome sin. Well, this is good news. Because Jesus shows you, you can indeed suffer. You will indeed suffer. But God is able to take you through the suffering and His Word is enough and His Spirit is enough and the cross is enough. And even should you die trying to walk away from your sin, Christ is worth more and the love of God is sufficient. And there's some who are just simply struggling because life is hard in the household of God. But there is good news. Greater is he who is in us than everything that is in the world. And Christ shows you that though you struggle, your testing is an affirmation of God's love and his presence in your life. Christ, the power and the presence that overcomes sin. Let me close with this. On March 18th, at a rally with over 200,000 people, a man quoted John 15, 13. And he said, and this is where the words from the scriptures come to my mind. There is no greater love than if someone gives his soul for his friends. That was Vladimir Putin justifying the invasion of Ukraine. Brothers and sisters, any dog or monkey can get up in a pulpit and quote scripture. It is a faithful child of God who knows Christ, who's been given the power not to speak Scripture, but to live by it with great joy and delight in good seasons and in bad seasons, filled with the joy and love and goodness that does not kill or destroy for one's own personal agenda, that does not try and build a kingdom or empire for ourselves but instead willingly sacrifices a life for the sake of sinners who do not deserve it and out of love for the Father. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for rescuing us from ourselves. Thank you for protecting us against predators in the household of God. Thank you for giving us the power to endure suffering and hardship for the sake of the fellowship with a God who is perfect and whose love for us in the gospel is nothing less than perfection. In your name we pray, amen.